0: The end of 2022 marked a new point in general awareness of the potential, for better or worse, that artificial intelligence will have in our lives. We're now more aware, after the vast impact of social media, that the technology hype cycle rapidly leads to a new, unintended set of consequences for work and society. And AI has heightened this debate to the level of existential threat, perhaps also heightened by our recent pandemic shared experiences. In this show, we talk to Nick Chatrath, who's been thinking hard about how leaders will need to thread a path through the disruption, opportunity and pitfalls of leading in an automated world. Consistently, we turn back to the perennial wisdom of human needs.
1: welcome to the evolving leader the show born from the belief that we need deeper more accountable and more human leadership to confront the world's biggest challenges i'm scott allender co-host of the show along with my friend and leadership expert john gomes and we are now into season six of the evolving leader and if you've been listening for a while thank you so much for your continued support and if you haven't done so already we would greatly appreciate if you could hop over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating and a review. It helps other people find us and expand our Evolving Leader community. And if you're brand new, welcome. We are glad you're here. And we have a good one for you today. But before we welcome our guest, let's check in with one another, as we always do on the show. So, John, how are you feeling today?
0: Uh, Thanks for asking, Scott. I am feeling a little fatigued. Um, I am feeling... uh, satisfied um because it's been a good week and i am feeling very curious and um uh yeah very positive about reconnecting with our guest who i have known for some years now and i'm really looking forward to to chatting him to him again so scott how are you feeling
1: i'm feeling hungry i uh i was on holiday and i i ate like it was my job for a couple weeks since then. I've just resumed doing the uh, intermittent fasting, so I'm feeling hungry, but I'm also feeling uh, quite joyful and very, very curious because today we are joined by Nick Chadrath. After graduating from Cambridge University, Nick began his career at Anderson as a management consultant and then moved to McKinsey and Company, where he worked mainly in the UK, Europe, and the United States. After leaving McKinsey in 2003, he became a master executive coach and established his own coaching practice. He is also the managing director of Artesian, a consultancy that brings soulful leadership, which I want to talk to him about, I love that idea, to large and medium-sized organizations worldwide. And along the way, He did two master's degrees and a doctorate, wrote a book, co-wrote a bestseller, and founded a tech startup. His 2023 book, The Threshold, Leading in the Age of AI, quickly grabbed our attention. And in his book, Nick offers a revolutionary framework for how leaders in all kinds of organizations can adapt to the new age of technology by leaning into qualities and skills that make us uniquely human. Nick, welcome to The Evolving Leader.
2: Thank you great to be here.
0: Nick, welcome to the show. How are you feeling today?
2: Uh, I'm feeling quite a lot like Tigger. I'm feeling delighted. Um, Firstly, to reconnect with you, John, after all these years. And secondly, I've just been in the swimming pool before this. And uh, a few months ago, for the first time, I took on a triathlon coach. And he had me in his endless pool, one of these pools where you're swimming, but you're not going anywhere. And he was giving me coaching two days ago, And I tell you, he gave me two tips. I was swimming like a bullet. So the competitive animal in me was uh, feeling delighted at how fast I just went.
0: Do you want to pass those tips on? Because Scott loves swimming.
2: (laughs) Very happy to. I mean, the two two tips are basically breathe and push the water so that you're moving. That's essentially what it comes down to.
0: I told you that, Scott. I told you you should breathe when you're swimming. <laughs> I know. I'm going
1: to write that down this time so I don't forget.
0: <laughs> I didn't know about the other one. I kept on wondering why you were thinking. But yeah, there you go. Thanks, Nick. That's a good start. So, look, you've had a really interesting um journey. Can you give us the origin story um, for your career? Why did you get into this in the first place? And w- what led you to writing the book? What was the aha moment that uh, led you to create it? And then, once you've done that, can you give us the pitch? Who's the book aimed for? And what's the big idea?
2: Certainly. Well, the origin story for my career, I only actually worked out decades into my career, which was even as a 10-year-old when a teacher at school asked me to help out with another pupil. I realized that coaching, giving some perspective, helping someone else develop and flourish, that's really what I love doing. Uh, And that's carried me through in different ways. Um, In terms of the book, there I was in 2017 going for a run. Um, I seem to have had quite a sporty start to this podcast, actually. But I was running in Oxford and having founded the tech startup that had some AI in it and some wearables, and I just had this epiphany and all these ideas flowing into my mind. So when I finished the run, I wrote them down and then promptly forgot about all these ideas. Then three months after that, I was having a shower, a place of great creativity as well, and had another epiphany, this aha moment. But lots of ideas just came into my mind. And so then after I got out of the shower, I wrote these ideas down as well. And then I had the bright idea to compare the two sets of ideas. And it turned out they were identical, both about AI and human leadership, AI and humanity. This is back in 2017. It took me a while. I'm a slow writer. And the book eventually came to see the light of day this year. And little was I to know that Microsoft and OpenAI would do me the great favor of making this whole Subject incredibly topical, um, but yeah, it was that slow journey out of the tech startup through some ideas, and then linking in with my career of helping people. Um, in terms of who it's aimed at, I'd say it's aimed at anybody interested in AI, especially leaders. I define leadership very broadly because it includes self leadership. So at some level, we all have the opportunity to lead. Um, and the big idea uh, I would say is you can't outmachine the machines. your humanity is also Hmm. a superpower
1: yeah so let's expand on that because you highlight uh, i want to i want to pull that apart the solution for organizational leaders is to not become more like computers but for our organizations to survive as we stand in the threshold of this new era we must tap into these qualities that make us uniquely human and i know john and i think you're right so uh, in your view what is it? What are those qualities that make us uniquely human and will give us our, you know, our advantage?
2: Yeah, it's a great question. And it's, it's a very large question. <laughs> what are the mm-hmm. qualities that make us uniquely human? And I love the way that you connect it in your question to organizations, um, because organizations are comprised of human beings. And right now, Organizations have got a tremendous opportunity to shape the future beneficially using AI. And I think that these qualities center around love and wisdom and a creative embrace of mystery, a creative embrace of ambiguity. We are leaning into a future where the capabilities of AI are so strong uh, that we can't know exactly how things will develop. I think the surprise that many in the world experienced with the launch of ChatGPT3 and then 4 and many other tools, those surprises are the new normal. We'll continue to get surprised. So we can't predict the future. I mean, we never could, but even now, the pace at which it's changing is so fast. So I think one of the biggest human qualities is, is a humility about the future and an ability to work with polarities, to work with ambiguity and be okay with that. Um, and then finally, I would say, Um, a deep kindness, Um, Mm. the ability to uh, recognize as humanity, we are all the same in essence. And I think there's such a risk right now of inequalities getting worse and worse, a concentration of wealth, both individually and nationally as well as in corporates. So Mm. that kindness is going to be something that I think will enable us to deploy AI well.
0: Mm. So I think, my take from the book was it's not a book about AI, it's a book about our relationship to it. And You, you talk about um needing to manage both a, a psychological independence from AI and simultaneously maintaining a close relationship with it. It's a kind of paradox, Goldilocks kind of conversation. Can you delve into that for us?
2: Certainly. Uh, AI is everywhere for good and bad. So I think if we maintain a close relationship with it, then it helps us position to use it beneficially. I think I see in boardrooms and in other executive settings and managerial settings, in some, there's a combination of fear and retreat. They know that AI is really important, but sort of doubling down on the old core business, um, not really investing in ways that AI could be used well. Um, So I think we need to stay close to it because it is uh, increasing in capability, increasing in functional capability across the board almost. Um, Also, I would say that as powerful as AI might be, it's fundamentally incapable of replicating the full breadth and depth of human experience. And you asked earlier about those qualities that make us human. So I would advocate against getting sucked into thinking that AI can experience this full breadth of humanity. And I think you used the word psychological, psychological independence in your question. And in my book, I talk about the, the liminality of the strong and the liminality of the weak. So this this word liminality, and it's a word that's very close to the threshold. It's this idea of a, a, a space that is, um, is very nuanced and um, uh, potentially chaotic, but full of ambiguity. We don't know exactly what's on the other side, uh, the essence. And I love the way you summarized my book is that it's about our relationship to AI, I love that. And my proposal, my hypothesis is not to tell people, this is it, here is a box with carefully defined walls and a door and a ceiling, and here's the box, and that's the answer. More I'm inviting people to cross into this liminal space and I think that this psychological independence is important because different human beings on the planet are in different places, in different positions to AI. So you have, you have, for example, the strong and the weak. Uh, I referred there to over concentrations of wealth. Um, so for those who are in a strong place, maybe to be in a liminal space is to, uh, to be very humble. Um, maybe if if you're in a position where you feel very weak in regard to the economic situation or demographics or, or AI, maybe then your, your way to be more liminal is to be assertive. Um, so I think to be able to do that, people need psychological independence. So
0: that's, that's really interesting. So um, what typically you get in business books is a manifesto that's based on sort of like a root plan, you know, root march, you know, this is what you need to do. These are the five things you need to do and so on. And, and your book is actually um, in part uh, almost like a philosophical uh, exploration of this challenge. And it's trying to to help us think about balancing those paradoxes and the nuance and so on. And um, that's that's a challenge for a lot of leaders to actually get themselves into the space of, of being able to, occupy that form of thought because they're so busy and so, you know, short-term that, you know, it's stepping back and having that. How do you um, prime the people you work with to try and get into that bigger picture form of thinking and that more divergent form of thinking? I mean, all these ideas popped into your head in the shower, on the run, you know, in that that space that's not about work. How do you get people to think like this?
2: The... um the job of leadership just got more challenging, but it also got so much more fun. And you mentioned the word philosophical, and, okay, I had some ideas five, six years ago, but in a sense, a lot of these ideas are deep wisdom that's been around for millennia. Um, the way that I prime people is to... It's a way that I find very inspiring myself, is to focus on the both and. So up till five or 10 years ago, there was a very... Um, uh, well-known and well-researched stream of thinking in the business world about performance and health. And I believe it remains valuable, this idea that uh, you, you ideally would focus in a, in a large organization on performance, meaning managerial, technical, strategic aspects, as well as health, meaning those uh, potentially more human or what some would call softer aspects that help the organization sustain and renew. Now, often this performance and health focus, and it's very good in itself, because just focusing on performance to the detriment of health or vice versa was getting people nowhere. So it's very good. But until relatively recently, the health side of it often became diluted down to merely something like employee well-being, or let's have an away day, um, or let's just build a bit of trust via a three-hour session or something as if we could. Mm -hmm. So it became watered down. Whereas now, the reason I say it just got more fun is that the health side is is about tapping into love and wisdom and um, genuinely believing that every single other human being on the planet is intelligent and worthy of good outcomes and creative. And therefore, if I really pay attention to that person and give them the space and set up the psychological safety, they will come up with better ideas or they will contribute them. Maybe they didn't feel safe enough to contribute them and our organization will do better so the reason why i say it just got more fun is that now the both and is okay still the kpis the marketing the strategy all these other functional aspects and sector specific knowledge remains vital and the health side just got deeper uh, and we need to master both it goes back to the classic cp snow essay from the 1950s about the two cultures the arts and the sciences leaders to be effective in the future really need to be um speaking the, the languages of those two worlds
1: can you can you tell us more about the competitive advantage that an organization that embraces everything you're talking about um the, essentially the stuff that makes us human the more human piece versus where I think the temptation is, is that whoever has the most technology wins, right? Whoever can em- embrace and leverage all the emerging technologies. And I'm not diminishing the value of that whatsoever, but we can over-index towards the tech piece. Um, and I feel like I can see that in certain places. So for somebody listening right now going, okay, I, I appreciate everything you're saying, but really where's the true competitive advantage for me embracing the humanity piece of this? Why does psychological safety matter so much? Why do these things matter?
2: So when we talk about competitive advantage, uh, we are talking about businesses and other large organizations generating value. In some cases, it's shareholder value. In other cases, it's other sources of value. I think you're absolutely right that over-indexing on technology is not the way that that will be achieved. In fact, I've heard in the last months as I've been involved in many conversations in terms of in politics, in education, in business, many other settings, conversations about AI and generating value and generating a competitive advantage. I've noticed people talk about uh, three different things. Number one, some people index really on the technology, exactly as you said. Some people are talking about ethics and regulation, particularly in the last couple of months. You've heard this a lot the media. Mm -hmm. And um, thirdly, people are talking about collaboration. A lot of businesses talking about collaborating now with former competitors, not just others in their ecosystem, because they fear they'll get left behind. All of these areas of focus are very positive. What I've noticed a gap in is a focus on the leadership element. How do we lead and shape the future of Mm -hmm. AI? Now, in order to generate competitive advantage, I think a focus on all of those is required. But to cut to the question of, OK, but where does this competitive advantage come from? The capabilities of AI, uh, we're not seeing productivity improvements everywhere, but there is vast potential for eliminating waste, improving productivity, helping businesses not just access adjacent markets, but create new markets. Uh, we all saw the uptick of ChatGPT in terms of how many users in such a small space of time. So. Um, it has been said recently, and I think this is true, that we're in a moment a little bit like the mid to late 1990s, uh, where the internet was starting to be thought about in a new way, and companies were trying to capitalize on it. And uh, what happened was many of the Uh, business winners of the 80s and the 90s just disappeared. Some of them became very small. Mm. Many companies just came out of the clouds and now are global leaders. Um, So we're probably at a similar moment, except that the change may come faster and at a bigger scale. So I think the competitive advantage will come from all the classic areas. It's just that those companies leading AI well to collaborate with the right technology and not falling foul of some ethical issues will win the day
1: and i agree that felt so true to me that there's not enough conversation about how are we going to lead through this really well so let's pull that apart a little bit more if we could um because you point out that a- as you're referencing now you know old models of leadership are becoming obsolete yet it seems many organizations are still uh holding on to them leaving them with frustrated and often burnt out Teams um, add to it the complexity of all the merging AI technology, and, and the issue gets really challenging. So, in your view, which models of leadership in particular really need to be done away with at this point, and what should they be replaced with?
2: Well, let me highlight one. I mean, there are many models, but the, the one there is one that I think we sure. should have learned centuries ago was no good. Um, And this is the the, it's the hero or the the great man theory of leadership, Uh, the great Mm. man theory of leadership. Thomas Carlyle in the 1840s, he sort of coined this. And um, this is something, a form of leadership that has existed for millennia. But also you see it in some street gangs today, but also a lot of organizations. And this model of leadership is characterized by the continuous exercise of power. And leaders are immersed in a need to gratify their own desires opportunistically. And sometimes this model of leadership is known as an alpha approach to leadership or a a wolf pack approach to leadership. Um, And it's typified today by executives who disregard others. Um, And leaders who follow that model, they're disconnecting their thinking from their full humanity. And they're prioritizing short term success and wealth. Uh, over flourishing or over averting suffering. And if you listen to some of the words I've just used there, you know, it's a focus on on man rather than humanity. It's disregarding others or disconnected or short-term success. It is hard Mm. to think of a more odious leadership model. But Mm. as you say, some are still holding on to that. Uh, And what do you replace it with? I mean, I would say this, wouldn't I? Threshold leadership. Uh, a more inviting form of leadership that uh, creates the conditions for us to thrive and excel, even in a world where AI gets way more capable than it is today. Mm.
0: So we're, um, as you say, like probably in a similar situation, we were in the mid nineties with the internet, where there's a lot of kind of noise and uncertainty around what do we need to do uh, to, you know, to, to jump on the bus and get going. And, uh, probably an undue degree of focus on things like uh, prompt engineers and skill sets that are probably tr- quite transient uh, much in the same way as that you know people who built websites had a, a finite career because now it's all automated similarly that kind of level of interaction in ai is going to be a transitory career what do you, what do you think in terms of how we need to evolve to coexist with ai as a pervasive uh, you know environment so you've got you know like you, you have a um, a collaborative experience with it what what's your thoughts on that
2: um well firstly I think that your question strikes at the heart of what is needed um, often if you read some of the media reporting or the way that others are talking about the future you hear is it going to be AI or is it going to be humanity you know who will Prevail and uh, these recent stories about the extinction of humanity—it's sort of one or the other as a battle. The codependence is so important. Um, we're already collaborating with AI. Um, there's this um, well-known line of thinking called the AI effect, um, where it's this tendency to redefine AI to mean that AI is just anything that has not been done yet. So AI is always something other uh, and. Actually, we, I mean, my iPhone is happens to be on my desk as I'm speaking with you, and I think for many of us, our phones are less than a meter away from us for pretty much most or all of the 168 hours in a week. And our iPhones or equivalent are AI fueled, and so we are already leveraging AI, we're collaborating, we're codependent in some way. Um, It's a short step from that to implants, uh, potentially, you know, neural. Uh, linked implants of some kind. So the codependence, I think, will only increase and the successful future will be for those who collaborate with AI. And I think that at that point, the it goes back to your first question about um, us cultivating those qualities that are most distinctively human. Um, for example, mm. cultivating stillness. I mean, I remember... It was around the time I had first had the idea for the book, actually. I can't remember if it was before or after, but I went on a walking retreat in a place called Mottisfont in the south of England. And it's a beautiful place uh, where there was a well that was uh, uh, found um, uh, many years ago, something like in the 1200s, around 800 years ago, maybe a little bit more than that. And there's a beautiful well there. And the guide just made us stand by this well, and he said to us, have a look at that well, describe the water. And we were looking at the water on the well and it was completely still. Couldn't see anything moving, beautiful. So we were standing there and this moment of stillness. And then after a few minutes, the guide said, just look to your right, what do you see? Uh, And we saw a stream and it was a gushing stream. It was very powerful, lots of water going through it. Now this stream was directly coming from the well. Uh, And the well was completely still. And yet it was generating this immensely productive stream, which was then going off. And I had a a real uh, epiphany there where I suddenly realized, wow, this is a place where stillness and productivity meet. And I see that in leaders all the time. And there's something uniquely human about the way we can slow down We can breathe. We can really tap into our full embodied and historical wisdom and generate creative thoughts, shaping thoughts. And AI can't do that in the same way. So there are real areas of distinctiveness that we can add even in this codependent future. I would say especially in this codependent future because you may be able to pick up from my book and my tone of voice that I'm fundamentally optimistic about this, Hmm. notwithstanding the risks.
1: Yeah, I feel the optimism and I like it.
0: I think, well, that taps into the earlier, um, it kind of taps into an earlier point that you were making around uh, how do we, how do we manage this psychological freedom, this relationship, this balance between dependency and so on. And um, I'm just interested, you know, your thoughts on how do we not fall into the trap of, um, you know, imbuing almost magical properties onto AI and ensuring that we don't, you know, it's not the GPS system that takes us over the cliff. Um, and how do we maintain true wisdom and, and make the distinction between those things?
2: Yes, magical. Is a, <laughs> it's a strong word. And I, I like the use of the word because um, when AI has a new capability that emerges and it has been developed and released, uh, often we don't know exactly how that was generated, and, and the reaction can be, "Wow, there's this black box. What's going on?" And almost we immediately think about Blade Runner or Terminator or Black Mirror or something from the, uh, something else we've watched, where we think, "Wow, this thing is gonna. It has a. It has a consciousness of its own. It has a life of its own. And in fact, this word consciousness is really at the heart of this question. I would say, um, because in my view, I mean, yes, AI is continuing to chalk up functional advances. But I mean, as we talk about this term of consciousness, I mean, I do want to issue a disclaimer here. Number one, I am not a philosopher. And number two, I do love the phrase by uh, Professor Colin McGinn, who is a philosopher. uh, And he wrote that discussing consciousness can reduce even the most fastidious thinker to blabbering incoherence. Um, so I'm not going to say nothing about it. But um, but what's interesting, you know, is that philosophers who m- give those caveats about consciousness then go on to say a lot about consciousness. <laughs> it's, uh, it's always funny to me when I'm reading those things. Um, I think there's a big difference between the functional advances we see in AI where it can mimic aspects of humanity and having the experience itself actually having the experience. And there's this term in philosophy called qualia, which is this notion of having a subjective instance of of conscious experience. Um, For example, if I look at a beautiful sunset, then, okay, now an AI-fueled robot can see the sunset in a certain sense, because there'll be cameras and it can take in that image and it can process it could maybe even tell you things about the sunset and what kind of sunset it is so in some sense it can see the sunset but it also cannot see it in the sense i can in terms of the experience i have of this beautiful sunset or if i drink a glass of milk after i've just been for a swim the the joy that gives me the experience that gives me uh, surpasses what a a computer even an ai-fueled one could have so it's, it's not magic there, but there's something going on around consciousness that is distinctively human. And so the more that we tap into those experiences that do something to us that, that are congruent in some way, mentally, emotionally, physically, spiritually for us, that's where we're tapping into our distinctiveness as human beings. So in answer to your question about how, it's that congruence and that integration of the different facets of human experience that I think lies at the heart. And this is not an, an ethereal thing. This relates to business leaders as well. Because time and again, I see people causing conflict or leaving value on the table because they just miss something that's actually resonant as to what's really going on with their customers or their colleagues.
1: I love that you actually point that out, that that example of standing at the sunset and looking at it. Um, it reminds me, we had perceptual neuroscientist Bo Lotto on the show way back in season one, and he was talking about how you know, only sort of 10% of what we perceive comes through our eyes, right? The rest, you're talking about everything else that's part of the experience, the sort of history, what your brain remembers about things like that, what your body's feeling in that, and all of those things working together as we talk about on the show that helps us build mindsets and make sense of the world. So coming back to this idea of leading through the AI world, what is the sort of, you use the term raising leadership consciousness, like raising our consciousness around that. How do we start to do that well as, as things move forward rapidly? How do leaders listening right now raise some of their consciousness around what they need to do, the kind of mindset they need to build, things they need to look out for, opportunities they need to seize? We've touched on a lot, but I'm wondering if we can kind of bring it together for... um some advice here at this moment for for people listening.
2: Um, Yeah, there are a couple of practical tips or exercises that come into mind. And the first one actually relates to something I learned by reflecting on my family's journey. I'm half Indian, half Greek, and my dad was born in pre-partition India. And when he was seven, he and his family, uh, lots of them had to walk from what is now Pakistan down into what is now India. And I cannot imagine how difficult that journey must have been over days, weeks, and months. And some of what they suffered in those weeks and months, um, will have made it through. I mean, this, this happened, what was it? 30, nearly 30 years before I was born. But some of what happened there will have made it through into me, into my life, because that will have affected my father. It will have affected how he uh, brought me up. Um, for Mm. good or bad and so there are ways in which that which was in a previous generation is affecting me today and probably affecting my daughters in the way I bring them up isn't that interesting Uh, Mm. that my consciousness now as a leader is affected by those things that's just part of reality Mm -hmm. so part of raising consciousness is um, uh, grasping more and more of our reality so I think the first exercise which is something that I've actually been practicing in the last year or two is to spend time reflecting deeply on those early life relationships and relating them to my present leadership challenges and opportunities. Um, The second exercise I would suggest is one called thinking pairs, which is described in detail in the book. And it's an exercise pioneered by and included uh, with permission of Nancy Klein, who's an American coach, one of the best coaches in the world. And um, this is an exercise where with one other person, you spend, it could be 15 minutes each, could be half an hour each, and you ask a question along the lines of, what do you want to think about and what are your thoughts? And it can sound very simple, a bit like the opening question of this podcast, how are you feeling? Um, If you bring the right quality of attention to the other person when they're answering, then you can create the conditions for them to be more generative in their thinking than they usually are. Because we live in a culture where we interrupt each other all the time. And I'm loving this conversation where we're not doing that. It's fantastic. And in in our business culture, in our family cultures, in society, so often we cut each other off by interrupting. And we show that we don't care what the other person is going to say next, as much as we care about what I'm about to say while I'm interrupting you. And so this thinking pairs exercise is founded on a deep fascination with what the other person is about to say next. It's founded on a promise where I promise to think for myself and you promise to be really fascinated with what I'm saying and to give me great attention. So this exercise, uh, which I've used with many different organizational leaders, um, brings a smile to my face because when I introduce it, I can see people are thinking, "What? That? That's that's like too simple." And then when they try it, because of the difference between how they usually live their lives and this exercise, it, it creates breakthrough moments very quickly. Hi everyone, we hope you're enjoying this audio-only version of the Evolving Leader podcast. If you prefer to watch the episode, then head over to our YouTube channel, where you'll also find a host of other visual goodies. Use the URL youtube.com forward slash at evolving leader. And I'll also put that link in the show notes.
0: So Nick, uh, uh, you've given us a a taste and flavor of how we start to rethink our relationship with technology, in particular AI. What's next for you? Where are you taking this?
2: Yeah, uh, what's next for me is um, helping leaders flourish and helping organizations thrive. And that's actually a shift for me because I spent seven years, 17 years in my post-McKinsey career uh, juggling balls, as, as you uh, described some of them in your introduction in terms of writing books and tech startups and academic degrees and leadership coaching and consulting. Now, I'm doing one thing. I have my main thing, which is helping uh, advise organizations. I'm a partner in a leadership consulting firm, and so... We're just having that fun of serving many different for-profit and non-profit organizations around the globe. And AI is so embedded in the conversation now uh, that it's a delight to be part of that conversation. I think we are at a shaping moment in history um, where the way that people lead can generate stories that they'll be proud to tell their grandchildren about. So I find it an honor to be part of this conversation and this momentum that we have.
0: What's the hope for your daughters, you know, to make it really kind of bring it to home in terms of, you know, that intersect between parenting and consulting and all the different things you're doing in your life? What what kind of world do you hope they will step into in terms of their relationship with technology?
2: I hope they will step into a kind world. I hope they will step into a world where everybody is valued equally and I think we're making some progress towards that. Uh, I hope they will step into a creative world where they feel that they really can bring the best of themselves. And I also hope that with the developments there are in understandings about adult maturity, that they can reach a a place where they're comfortable with ambiguity faster. You know, I think about me um, studying exam after exam and trying to land a job at the finest companies in the world in my 20s and overly competitive, chasing the badge of achievement all the time. And frankly, it was at least until the age of 30, after the age of 30 when I got married. And then probably several years after that, you should ask my wife, that I started to enter into some form of maturity that I might define as adult-like. Well, my hope for my daughters would be that they would reach where I got to and then beyond much faster.
1: Well, Nick, um, I so appreciate the approach you're taking. Uh, not enough people are having the kind of conversations that you're leading in this space. So, thank you. And for our listeners, um, you know, we just touched uh, at a very high level on these these important topics. So, do do uh, stop today and and get your copy of Threshold Leading in the Age of AI. So, um, again, Nick, thank you for your time. And how can people get in touch with you?
2: Uh, They can go to the website, artesiangroup.co.uk. I'm also on LinkedIn and Twitter, and sometimes at the swimming pool.
1: (laughs) Well, we'll (laughs) direct them to Twitter, not the pool, but yeah. (laughs) Excellent. It's great
0: to see you, Nick. Thank you.
1: All right, my friends. Thank you for listening. And remember, until next time, the world is evolving. Are you?